0: I hope you're able to uh, download or print out the notes uh, on Nehemiah. It's, um, it's really an important, uh, it's an important part of, of getting the most out of this study, so I'm hoping that you were able to do that. I want to start by just um, reviewing a couple of things. Um, I'm not sure how much you know about the history that is part of the Old Testament. Um, because by and large, um, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Numbers, uh, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles are all history. They're, they're historical narratives of the nation and, and uh, of Israel and so on. And uh, one of the fabulous things about archaeology and all that is going on in our, our world today. Is so much of the historical narrative of the Bible is being confirmed by by archaeology and by historical finds. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Uh, I subscribe to a publication called the Biblical Archaeological Review, and it's quarterly publication, and every or no, bimonthly, Excuse me, so that's six times a year. Uh, there are just articles that almost the entire magazine is filled with archaeological digs that are confirming something in Scripture. So it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's really exciting to be alive at this point in time. But for you to truly understand what is going on in the book of Nehemiah, you have to understand a little bit of the history. So would you allow me to walk you through some of the history? Yes, I mean, sure. it's really important. And to do that, I'm going to use First National Bank's uh, paper. And they're always so generous, mainly because one of their key uh, leaders is in our Bible study and he allows me to do this they've had a record year so yeah well, they had a great quarter so we're right, taking advantage Right alright on, on. Right, now you know you know that the nation of Israel was born with father Abraham and uh, you know, he is called out of Mesopotamia so we're going to round that off to about 2100 BC okay and then with Abraham, and I'm not going to list all this, but you have Abraham and his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and then with Jacob, who has 12 sons, they are the genesis of the 12 tribes of Israel. You still with me? Yes. Sir. Okay. And it is during the uh, during the time of Jacob that his one son Joseph was sold by his other 11 brothers into slavery Yeshua wanted to take him down to Egypt and he ends up uh, in Pharaoh's court, I mean you know the basic story of Joseph, but the importance is that Joseph as Joseph is the second key guy in the uh, empire of Egypt he brings the entire clan uh, of of Jacob down to to Egypt So that's a 70-member clan. The entire family is 70 members. And they're brought down to Egypt and they live for 430 years in an area called Goshen. And it is in that kind of incubator that the nation of Israel is born. And that's what the book of Exodus is all about. Because the book of Exodus tells us that the people of Israel were taken out of Egypt by Moses, and Moses is not only the deliverer, this is running out of ink. Did I turn that on? Yeah. I shouldn't say I turned it on. I don't know anything about it. But Moses is both the deliverer out of Egypt, but he's also the lawgiver. God gives him the law, which is really the constitution of the nation, as you know. And then following the exodus, which is in 1446 B.C., you then have the conquest of Canaan. There's an E there. Under Joshua. And that conquest took seven years. And the conquest is basically completed by about 1399 B.C., and then then you have, and I'm going to skip some, but you have the Judges and so on, but then you have the monarchy of, of Israel. After the period of the Judges, you have the monarchy, and of course the monarchy is founded by David. Uh, even though Saul was the first monarch, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he uh, would be uh, uh, dethroned. God took his blessing off of him and put it on David. David's about a thousand BC, and his son Solomon is the king who builds the temple, as you know. Now, uh, with out going into any more detail, from Solomon's rule, Solomon dies in 930 B, oops, in 930 BC, that's a three, 930 BC, and the kingdom is divided into two parts: the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is a Davidic monarchy. This is the kingdom of Judah. is the kingdom of Judah this is the kingdom of Israel and as you know this is ten tribes of the north two tribes of the south but this is the Davidic monarchy this is the monarchy this is the, the royal line this is the messianic line Jesus will come from this line this is a false kingdom this is a, this is a kingdom there's not one good king in the northern kingdom; they're all evil kings. And this kingdom goes in, goes out of existence in 722 B.C. So I'm going to write that down. This kingdom goes out of existence in 722 B.C. The Assyrian Empire destroys it. This kingdom goes out of existence in 586 B.C. Okay, but now are you with me? Mm-hmm. We've just covered, you know. <coughs> about 1,500 years of history in, what, five minutes. But, now, this is really important to remember. When the Davidic kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, goes into exile, so we're going to now call this the exile. 586 B.C. Where are they taken?
1: I don't know, but i want to ask you about that. In the prefects here, in your ESV, it says the people who had returned had no way to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talking about after they had been were exiled somewhere and they came back. That's right. I just need a refresher on it.
0: Well, that's what I'm going to talk about right now. Okay. okay. So, where do they go into exile? Babylon. They go to Babylon. They're taken to Babylon. Not all of them, but they're actually three ways, but that doesn't matter. They're taken to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23, among many other places, prophesied and declared, you will be in Babylon for a period of time. Make exactly the, the, the precise number of years. How many years? 70. 70 years. So Jeremiah 23 says, you will be in exile for 70 years. Now you need to remember all that because this is where the book of Nehemiah picks up. Okay, so, the, the, if you go back through this particular sheet right here, this kingdom, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north that rebelled against the Davidic monarchy, they go out of existence, there is nothing about them being returned or anything like that, doesn't mean they didn't return, but there's nothing... This group that's taken in exile 586 BC, the Davidic monarchy, the Davidic kingdom, Judah, that's what Jeremiah is talking about. In 70 years you'll come back. Okay, now it's now 539 BC. Okay? And uh, something very significant happens. The Persian Empire, the Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire, it goes out of existence, and the new Persian ruler, his name is Cyrus, issues a decree. All the Jews can go back to their homeland, and all of the Jews can rebuild their temple. As a matter of fact, Cyrus says in that decree, I am going to take the money out of my treasury for you to rebuild your temple. So he has—he's given them the right to do it. He's given them the authority to do it. And he's giving them the money to do it. And so it's an incredible—it's an incredible magnanimous act on the part of this this king, this pagan king. And what is even more remarkable is he says, "I will give you the protection to rebuild your temple." And is that, so is
1: that our text? Our uh, texts or the
0: name of this? Artaxerxes. I can't say. No, not Artaxerxes. That's, that's a different ruler than this. All right. But he's another Persian king, but we'll be talking about him in just a minute. Now, I just want to make sure, because these books are the Bible. The book of Ezra, which we're not studying, but the book of Ezra, which is the uh, book that precedes in Nehemiah, the book of Ezra talks about two waves of exiles coming back. So they return from the Babylonian area to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. So these ways they rebuild the temple. So now temple worship in Jerusalem on Temple Mount has been restored. So now you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 55,000 Jews that have come back. They're living in the area of Judah. They're in the area of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. Sacrificial system has been restored. Is there a Davidic king on the throne? No. No. They're under Persian authority. There will be no Davidic king until Jesus. The Davidic monarchy is on hold. Because they're under the Persian Empire. They return as a part, they're Persian citizens, not Persian citizens, they're Persian subjects. And so, it's just extraordinary how all this is happening. And then the book of Nehemiah, this is where this fits. The book book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Question. Because the city of Jerusalem is very vulnerable. Because as we'll be seeing in the book of Nehemiah, there are enemies to the north, there are enemies to the east, and there are enemies to the south that do not want Judah restored. They do not want the temple secure. They do not want Jerusalem. They're going to do everything they can to stop that. That's where Nehemiah comes in. And then, and
1: then how did, did the walls and the gates
0: become, have need to be restored? Was there. Well, when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, back to this previous sheet here, when Nebuchadnezzar's army uh, destroyed Judah and destroyed Jerusalem in 580 BCC, 586 BC, they destroyed the city. They tore all the walls down, destroyed the temple. I mean, it, it just absolutely devastated the capital city of Judah. And so it had to be rebuilt. The temple had to be rebuilt, and that was the first thing they did right. under, uh, under Ezra. So, I mean, I, I hope this is okay. Do you sort of have the flow of it? <laughs> so it's, it's, an, it's an extraordinary event, and it's, it's a remarkable fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets have said. In Deuteronomy 28, God had said, "This said, Moses is still alive. Look, here's what I want you to do as I take you into your land. And if you walk with me in loving obedience, I will bless you in the land. If you mix obedience with me, with idolatry, and I'm going to keep warning you and I'm going to keep chastising you and if you don't knock it off, I'm going to put you in exile. That's exactly what God did. But he said, I will bring you back. And so you, you have this, this really it's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing to see how the history of Israel unfolds and God keeps saying, I'm going to discipline you, I'm going to chastise you, but you're still my people and I'm going to bring you back. And so you have it. That's what Nehemiah is all about. Nehemiah is the the, the, the the temple has been rebuilt, the sacrificial system has been restored, the high priesthood has been restored. There is no king, there is no Davidic monarchy, but the central religious center, Jerusalem, is now vulnerable because the city has no walls because every city in the ancient world, almost every city in the ancient world, had a fortress, had walls all around it for protection, for defense because... I mean, Jerusalem in its history has been conquered 23 times. And and, and part of that is because of how important Jerusalem is in terms of religious issues, but also in terms of its location. And so we're at this really, really critical period in the history of Israel with Nehemiah. This is about, now we're going to give some different dates, but the critical date is 444 B.C. That's in Artaxerxes. This is not Cyrus. This is, a, this is a hundred, about 100 years later. The king of Persia is called Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes will issue an order to allow Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, he had actually issued an order, and that's recorded for us in Ezra 4, prohibiting them from rebuilding the walls. But because Nehemiah is his cupbearer and he has won the favor of Nehemiah, Nehemiah uh, he is able to say, I'm going to give you the authority I'm going to help you rebuild it. You will rebuild the wall of Jerusalem with my authority as the king. And so he sends letters, he sends all kinds of, uh, of ways to ensure that this is done. So what you see here is God fulfilling his promises that he would bring his people back, but you also see God, the sovereign providential Lord of history moving events, moving rulers to accomplish his purpose. That's an exciting book. And in addition, Nehemiah has an enormous amount to teach us about leadership. I mean, I've taught Nehemiah in a lot of different settings, but you can take from Nehemiah a series of very significant leadership principles, which at the end of your notes, I have listed some of those from Swindoll's book, Hand Me Another Brick. All right, now I've given you the history and overview. Question. Uh, The city
2: itself, was that level? I mean. Is what? The city itself, was it leveled so that
0: there
2: were no inhabitants there? Yeah,
0: basically. Basically. Jerusalem was, under Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem was virtually totally destroyed, and there were very few people living in it. Very few people living in it. One of the things we're going to read near the end of the book is once the wall is completed, Nehemiah now has a strategy, I've got to repopulate the city because nobody lives there. They have the temple, they have the walls around, it, but nobody's living in the city. So he will develop a strategy, at the end of the book, he will develop a strategy to repopulate the city. And it's, it's a very significant task because how are you going to do that? How are you going to choose that? Okay, Joe, You mentioned um, Nehemiah
2: finding favor of the king is—is mm-hmm. is there anything? I mean, other, obviously, God's sovereignty. But with Cyrus, was mm-hmm. there a character that endeared himself to him that caused him to let the people go back and rebuild the temple, or was that? Uh, that's up? a
0: really good question. I would encourage you to read the end of Isaiah 44 into the beginning of Isaiah 45, because there, God, this is prophetic, because Isaiah writes this about 700 BC. So it's written, you know, 100 and. 60, 70 years before it occurred and, and God says I'm going to raise up Cyrus my servant who will lead my people back and he calls him Cyrus my anointed one there's a hundred ever his i Cyrus isn't even uh you know any kind of a notion in his mother's I uh, because she isn't even born yet. It's just an incredible prophecy, mm-hmm. and one of the intriguing to get your to get your so prophetically God's got this all mapped up. He even names the ruler a hundred and forty years before he's born. But what is interesting to conjecture here, Joe, is could Daniel have played a role in some of this? Because Daniel's dead by now. I mean, yep. you know, D- Daniel lived about eight, you know, eight hundred BC or so. But, uh, I mean, not 800 BC, excuse me, uh, around 580 BC or something like that. Did Daniel, because Daniel served most of his life, uh, I should say, after he was taken into exile, served most of his adult life in the court of the Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his regent, and so on. And he witnessed Cyrus destroying the Babylonian capital. He saw that, he witnessed that. And then he served He served, the last years of his life, he served the Persian king. And it's always interesting because you have two things that are intriguing in thinking about a connection. The first connection is, would his, as he was head of the Magi, you read that in the book of Daniel, because of what he had done, he became the head of the Magi. That's the Greek term for translating uh, uh, an Aramaic term. And so that's kind of interesting. The, The advisors, he was like head of the cabinet of the king. And so you you kind of, would he have been influencing the Persian king to think about what God had said? And so there's nothing in the Bible that says that. But that's an intriguing connection to make. Could ye have influenced, indirectly, because he would have been dead by this time, but indirectly, the Cyrus decision. By the way, if you ever go to London, the British Museum... There is, a, there is, in the British Museum, it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It is his decree allowing the Jews to go back.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I've been there a couple of times. That, oh, it's one of the most exciting things to see. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, you know, you're, this is really what's in the Bible. And that decree that is in the British Museum is in the Bible. It's in Ezra and part of it's in Nehemiah. I mean, it's really how all this just meshes together. The other intriguing thing is this, in Matthew chapter 2. Magi from the east. That's all we know about them. But the, the, the majority opinion of scholars, of scholars is that they came from the area of Persia, which then by that time was called the Parthian Empire, but from Persia. So would they have heard, would they have been informed, would they be looking for the astrological signs of the coming of the king of the Jews, which is mentioned in the book of Numbers? Could Daniel have been teaching the other Magi? Again, this is, you know, this is 500 years later, the Magi show up. But nonetheless, it's all these intriguing connections that are not outside the realm of real possibility. Because these guys had to have some kind of an understanding that this star rising in the east, which is literally what it says in Matthew two, that this star rising in the east is a sign of the coming Messiah, the King of the Jews. Well, where are Persians going to know about that? How are they going to know about that? They worship Ahura They're Zoroastrians. They're not. They're not uh, Jews. But so the, the the idea of Daniel influencing this thinking is not outside the realm possible, and it's not an outrageous idea. It's a very reasonable idea because of the role he played first in the Babylonian court and then later in the Persian court. Okay, uh, yeah.
2: No, know, you talk about, you know, this historical thing, and here we are, uh, we're individuals, and we don't think of ourselves at, at this level. And yet, God is working in the lives of each one of us. And what we're doing may have an influence down the road this next generation the following generation that will impact their lives for Absolutely. purposes that we will yep. never see mm-hmm. that may cause them to come to Christ in faith mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. I, I think that's that's an exciting thing because maybe that's a parallel to Well, if Well, I always ask this, you would ask this uh, question to my students. If we read about God's providential sovereignty in the Old Testament, is that still operational today in 2019? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just a part of that, but it doesn't have any application to us today. No, no, <laughs> no, very much so. Now, the difference is we have prophetic scripture being fulfilled It's a little more difficult to make that same kind of connection here. But one thing we know in Ezekiel 36 and 37, God said, I will bring my people back to their land. And it's associated with the end of history. So we watch what's happening in the Middle East today. Is God bringing his people back to their land? You know, I mean, no matter, I don't care who you are. If you're a secular person, don't care about the Bible. The one thing you can say is there's a marvelous thing occurring right now. Jews are going back to Israel in record numbers. For the first time in history, there are more, in modern history, there are more Jews living in Israel than there are in the United States. Because for much of the 20th century, the largest concentration of Jews in the world was in the United States. Because we basically welcomed them. There wasn't the pogroms of persecution here. That's not true anymore. It's now in Israel. And, you know, it's just, you're just reading these things that, you don't want to set dates, you want to say, well, no, Jesus is coming back tomorrow afternoon at four. You don't say that. We can't make those kinds of predictions. But it does seem reasonable to conclude God is ordering things, and I am convinced of something else that I'm just astonished. Nobody seems to be paying attention to this. But Vladimir Putin is accomplishing something that every Russian Tsar dreamed about, having a foothold in the Middle East. And he now does. He's in Syria. He has a major naval base along the eastern coast, two two air force bases in Syria, and now because Trump abandoned the Kurds, he's now patro- with with Turkey patrolling the border between Turkey and and uh, and the Kurdish area. That's just, just unbelievable. I mean, Putin is Putin is leveraging every time there's a little vacuum, he moves <laughs> in right away. <coughs> there was a little vacuum in, in Libya. He moved into that. He's now got troops and bombers and his commandos in Libya. Uh, supporting one of those warlords. I mean, it's just these little things because the scriptures speak at the end of a power of the North. That is going to make war on Israel. After becoming very good friends with Israel, is going to turn on it. Vladimir Putin and Benjamin Netanyahu are very close friends. Because what Putin wants, Putin is not an atheist. He is a Russian Orthodox Christian. He's a very devout Russian Orthodox. I don't think about his personal faith, but he, he practices it. And he has made... Uh, Metropolitan Krill, who's the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, Krill speaks of him, of Putin, as the catacomb of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the restrainer.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, most expositors understand the catacomb <laughs> of 2 Thessalonians 2 to be referring to the Holy Spirit restraining evil. But Putin is restraining the evil onslaught, and he's preserving our nation. And so, I mean, it's just, these events are just, to me, mind-boggling what is happening. And the other thing is, the the other major power in Syria right now is Iran. And the scriptures speak of Gog and Magog. Those things all relate to these two regions of the world. it's just, it's a fascinating thing to study. So what's happening in Nehemiah is the fulfillment of prophetic declaration. But within Nehemiah, the clock begins to tick on the 70 years of Daniel which we'll talk about when we get to that passage mm.
1: can I uh, share a couple sentences out of this introduction yeah, it kind yeah. of fits in with what uh, Fred Scott was talking about he says the book beautifully demonstrates the fact that the Lord will sometimes use men who do not acknowledge him as the one true God to accomplish his purpose and, uh, and he said Nehemiah served under a heathen king but God touched the heart of
0: What's his name? Artaxerxes.
1: <laughs> so that he was willing to supply Nehemiah with all the means to rebuild Jerusalem. And I just thought that was... That's right. That was a lot of That's right. impact to that, that, that God does use people mm-hmm. that uh, don't even believe in him. That's to right.
0: Them. To accomplish right. his purposes. That's right.
1: And so, like you said, what we're doing today
0: might even influence some of All right, we've walked through the history. Now your thought paper for next week is Summarize the History of the Jewish People from Abraham to Nehemiah. 500 words or less. I don't accept late paper, so it's got to be due. I love to pretend that I can have that authority. All right, are you ready? Um, There's some introductory stuff. This is for people that are really, really in-depth students if you want to read through this, but... I try to establish an overview uh, to trace the securing of Jerusalem as a religious community separated from the Gentiles under Yahweh's law. It's not to restore the Davidic monarchy. It's not because re- they are not restoring that. They're under the authority of Persia. They're part of the province that's called Beyond the River. That's the province they're a part of. Whereas Ezra primarily was concerned with worship, Establishing of the temple and temple sacrifices, the priesthood and so on, Nehemiah is primarily civil. Yet civil establishment as a city in the Persian Empire is not secular and political, but establishes itself under Mosaic law as a religious community. Now, I don't know if you're following what I wrote there, but that is really important. This is what God is doing. This is what Cyrus sanctioned, and this is what Artaxerxes re sanctions we are allowing you to establish your temple, your capital city, as a separate religious community. So they wrote an amendment to their Constitution. Persia shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I just made that up. But in other words, they're allowing them to practice their religion of worshiping Yahweh under the control of Persia. And that, again, that's what when Woody was quoting from that introduction in his study Bible. That's exactly what, what's going on. So, if you take a look in your second page, I've given you the synthetic chart. That's what this is. Every time we study a book, I give you one. I think I've told you, when I was in graduate school, I had to do one of these for every book of the Bible. But Swindoll now makes his available online. And, I mean, his are so much better than mine. So you have Swindoll's. But it's, it's, a, it's a nice snapshot of the book. And it helps you to trace the argument that the book is making. But the bottom line is what I'm interested... The bottom chart is what I'm interested... This is one of my, this is one of my uh, PowerPoints that I use. But what I want you to see is it summarizes some of the things we have up here. Okay, here's the captivity... I'm reading from this. You see where I am? Here's a captivity of 70 years then under Zerubbabel and Ezra, the temple's rebuilt and the people are reformed. But I want you to notice something else. Between, between the rebuilding of the temple and the reform of the people is Esther. It's the book of Esther. Uh, my pastor, my boss, I'm going to stay at my church, has asked me, he always gives me assignments. I do two long sermon series. This sermon series that starts in January, I'm going to do it on Esther. And I really, I just finished it all. I just finished it last week, sent all of it off. They put it into a little booklet and all that stuff. But this is a remarkable book because Esther's a Jew. And Esther becomes the queen of Xerxes, who is the king of the Persian Empire. Xerxes is the one who made war on the Greeks. You ever hear of the Battle of Thermopylae, Marathon, all that? That her husband is the one who did that. And so it's a, it's a, it, this is an incredible period of history. And it's, it's a time when, as Esther is the queen, one of the top officials, the prime minister, in effect, of Persia, issues an order, Xerxes actually issues it, but to exterminate the Jewish people. Genocide on the Jews. Who rescues them? Esther. Esther. Her uncle says to her, God has put you here for such a time as this. And so it's a neat, and there's a lot of other things going on in the book that I won't bother you with because you're not as interested in it right now as I am. But then when Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries, they know each other, they share in these responsibilities, Then Nehemiah takes another wave of exiles back, 444 the key BC is the key, and that's the rebuilding of the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. And the, the the book of Nehemiah is in a critical nexus of time. There's a lot going on historically at this period. And Nehemiah is right in the center of it. The other thing I'd, I'd invite you to do, now, I don't if you print it out in color, it's probably a little clearer, but I want you to notice something. I gave you a map of the Persian Empire. But I want you to notice over here, I, I used my highlighter for it but I want you to notice right along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea are the words beyond the river. Do you see that? Okay, I'm going to say this again because some of you are acting like I'm speaking German or something. Along the eastern coast, this is a map of the Persian Empire, you'll see it's diagonally beyond the river. See that? That's the name of the Persian province. There were 129 provinces in the Persian Empire. One of them was called beyond the river that's where Jerusalem is. So you're going to see in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see a couple of times an order or a letter issued by the king and he'll speak of the province beyond the river. That's what he's talking about. And so beyond the river is the official name of the province in which Judah and um, Jerusalem are located. And Nehemiah is going to become the governor of Yehud, Y-E-H-U-D in English, which is the sub-province of beyond the river. Yehud comes from Judah. (laughs) But he will become the governor of that sub-province, that that smaller province within beyond the river. So I want you to be familiar with all this because it makes it come alive. And if you just look at that map of the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire was a massive empire. I mean, it was one of the largest empires in the ancient world because it stretched from India, the borders of India, all the way to Greece. And so... We're at a time in history where the things that are going on at this at this period, in which Nehemiah is located, is extremely significant. Now, can I do can I do one more thing before we start the book? Mm-hmm. I've given you also three PowerPoint, actually four PowerPoint slides, because I I, I want you to I want you to understand something: the exile. The exile, being in the exile for 70 years, changed the Jewish people. I mean, it forever changed them. It cured them of their penchant for idolatry. The one thing you see after they come back from the exile is they're not going to struggle with idolatry anymore, worshiping the Baals or anything else. They're going to remain loyal to the law, so what I want to do is, if you're if you if you're with me, the impact of the exile and restoration of the land. I want to read through those real quickly. Because th- these are the people. These are the people that come back. This is their mindset. And, you know, we're going to be getting close to about 400 years until Jesus shows up. And so I want to talk about one of the groups that develops during that period from this, this section. And then we'll be ready to start the book. Jewish people were now returning to the land, albeit as a vassal of Persia. They are not and will never be an independent country until 1948. They're always going to be under the control of somebody else. Persia, followed by the Greeks, followed by the Romans, followed by the Byzantines, that's the Eastern Empire, followed by the Muslims, followed by the Turks, followed by the British Empire. And so for you know, the next 2500 years they're going to be under somebody's rule until 1948 when the world community says the Jews have suffered so much with the Holocaust and all the pogroms of the late 19th or 20th century time for them to have their own homeland and they let them to do that though through the work of the minor and major, major and minor prophets the exile forced the people Jewish people to reflect on why Yahweh strengthened into exile and to ensure that this would never happen again Now I underlined this. Most definitely, the exile cured them of their penchant for idolatry. Now, would they remain the unique covenant people dedicated to the Lord God? That's the question, particularly of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Would they remain loyal? Number two, the influence of the Babylonian culture and Jewish culture was profound. Jewish names were now replaced with Babylonian names. And Aramaic was now the lingua franca. Uh, do you want know lingua franca means? It's the language of the day, the common language of the Babylonian Empire and was the prominent language of the Jewish community during and after the uh, exile. That's why by the time Jesus shows up most people that lived in the eastern Mediterranean, which sometimes called the Levant, in the eastern Mediterranean would spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, and probably Greek. That depends on where you live. You and I struggle with learning one language. They would have been—they've been fluent in three languages. Number three. Next slide. As a formal religion, Judaism was born during the exile. The law became central to the Jewish community after the exile. Increased study of the law became a passion. Becoming people of the book changed their focus. The Jewish community therefore re-emphasized their commitment. To absolute monotheism, that's evident in, proph- in the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Syncretism, do you know what syncretism is? Mixing the worship of Yahweh with something else, and idolatry would not be uh, uh, tolerated. The passion for the law also enhanced stricter observance of the Sabbath. Now, once you leave Malachi, and you enter that 400-year period of silence until book of Matthew, who is it that champions point number three? Pardon? Well, no, Ezra, yeah, Ezra does. That's correct. That, he is the one, that, and, and we'll read about that in Nehemiah chapter 8. But it's the generations that follow. It's the Hasidim, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are going to be the ones. They emerged during the intertestamental period. They're good guys during the intertestamental period. They're helping the Jewish people to keep their nose to the stone. It's about the law. It's about worshiping Yahweh. It's a sacrificial system. It's a civil law. It's all of those things. And most importantly, it's the observance of the Sabbath, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, they really, because they keep saying, if you don't observe the law and keep it, God's going to send us into exile again. But by the time Jesus shows up, their whole system had deteriorated into, unfortunately, a rigid legalism. Number four, as Ezra and Nehemiah illustrated, contact and assimilation with the pagan culture were not tolerated. That's why you're going to see in in the book of Nehemiah, it's also in the book of Ezra, but in the book of Nehemiah, there's a problem. Some of the young Jewish boys are intermarrying with pagan people. They're not marrying Jewish girls. They're supposed to marry Jewish girls. Right, I mean that's and so they're, what they're going to do is they're going to say you you have to, you have to divorce those girls. You can't stay married to these pagans, because the royal pure line is at stake. So how to interact with pagan cultures all around them would define the Jewish community for the next five hundred years. And that's why when the Sadducees emerge, they are much later than the Pharisees, but the Sadducees are going to be they're going to be very Greek. They're going to be very tolerant of accommodating to the Greco-Roman culture, not, not the Pharisees. Number, uh, the, the fifth and final point, a theological tension was now evident, especially in the prophets both before and after the exile. God's covenant loyalty, the Hebrew word is chesed, was obvious, for as promised, he returned them from Babylonia. Yet the new covenant promised by Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 was not fulfilled. The coming righteous branch of Jeremiah 23 and 33. The servant songs of Isaiah. They all await completion. Messiah. We're still looking for him. And then you, in Isaiah 65, they would read this. Of a new heaven and new earth. The minor prophets were laced with language and prophets that spoke of an age that did not fit with their vassalage under Persia. Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 talk of this mysterious temple which doesn't match the temple they're using at all. Their prophet spoke of the day of the Lord, filled with wrath and judgment, but also blessing. The day was connected with God's Spirit, who is was also connected with the new covenant. And to add to that the final slide, it's a perplexing book of Daniel. For it spoke of human kingdoms, but also of God's kingdom, and one like a son of man who would rule over God's kingdom. The future for the Jewish community was now focused on who would be the new David, the son of man, the servant of the Lord. That's the language from Isaiah, who would bring in the triumphant kingdom of God. The one, That one would fulfill the promises of God made to Abraham and David completely and perfectly. He would be the Messianic king. So by the time Jesus shows up 400 years later, the expectancy of Messiah is high. But the understanding of who Messiah is to be was not. They wanted a political deliverer, not a suffering servant who would die for their sins. And that's why they're going to push back against Jesus. We don't like what you're saying. We don't like what you're doing. Free us from the oppression of Rome and get on with it. Jesus says, that's not what I'm here to do. I'll do that at my second coming. All right. We've laid the groundwork for our study of Nehemiah. Is the groundwork laid? Mm-hmm. So you're ready to do your thought paper. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> He's ready, but I'm not sure the rest of you are. All right. I got to find my notes. If you're ready to start, let's uh, let's crack into the book of Nehemiah. Are there any? Qu- I've thrown a lot at you, but it's all in the material I've given you. Because honestly, man, for you to get, you get the maximum benefit out of this book, you have to understand the historical background. Otherwise, you you know, okay, I see you. I don't know what's going on here, but I'll still read it, which is how most of my students would always act. You know, but you're not like them. You're enlightened people. Ready? Let's yeah. start. Chapter 1, verse 1, book of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, So who wrote the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah, Nehemiah. okay? Now just make sure you know that. Now he's going to give us an account of a series of developments in the court of the king of Persia. His name is, as Woody now knows and can pronounce it correctly, is Artaxerxes. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital. In terms of the Jewish calendar, this would be November, December, 444 BC. Where's Susa? In the map that I gave you, if you're interested, you can find Susa. It's almost right in the middle of the map S U S A. That is the summer capital of the Persian Empire. So Nehemiah is in the capital of the Persian Empire. So, whoa, he must be pretty important if that's where he is. So as he's in, it's, it's November, December, 444 B.C. He's in the capital. One of his brothers comes into the court. His name is Hananiah. This is the brother, the biological brother of Nehemiah. And he came with certain men from Judah. You understand, Judah, that's a reference to what had been the province that was taken into captivity. So they've been to Jerusalem, and they had seen the temple. They'd seen what Ezra and Zerubbabel had done. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah is aware of the two waves of Jews that have returned from the Babylonian area to Jerusalem. How'd that go? Okay, did most people survive? Yes, almost everybody survived. Oh, by the way, Hananiah, what's Jerusalem look like? What's the city look like? You've told me the temple's rebuilt, I'm aware, but what's the city like? And they said, the remnant, that would be referring to the two waves of exile that returned on Zerubbabel and, and Ezra, there in the province who survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The fire would be the fire that Nebuchadnezzar's armies had set in 586 B.C. So what is Hananiah, the brother of Nehemiah, telling him? Our city is vulnerable. The temple's been rebuilt. God has accomplished what he promised he would accomplish. And Zerubbabel, whom we didn't talk about, but he's in the book of Ezra. Ezra. And Ezra, the the temple's rebuilt. Sacrificial system is reinstated. The priesthood's reinstated. But the city is in ruins. The walls are destroyed. The gates have been burned. Whoa. Nehemiah's a patriot. Nehemiah's a Jew. Nehemiah's interested in the the exiles that have gone back. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now you might want to underline that because you see that in several books of the Old Testament. When a Jew is in a foreign community or during the captivity under uh, Babylonian Persia, they always refer to Yahweh as the God of heaven. In an international context, our God is the God of heaven, i.e., our God is the one true God. And I said, he's giving us a little insight into his prayer. As he's fasting and praying, what's he praying about? Oh, Yahweh Elohim. Now in your, I want to just emphasize those names and titles of God. Whenever you see in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, the, the, the name Lord in capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh. And then God, in this context, is Elohim. So these, these are the two names that are central to the theology of Judaism. Yahweh Elohim. So he's praying to him. Oh, Yahweh Elohim of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. You promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. Seed, the Jews are now numerous. Land, we had it. We lost it but you're restoring us to the land now. And steadfast love. I want to teach you a Hebrew word here, and I don't want you to forget it. Don't ever forget it. I will be at the gate of heaven with Peter, saying, okay, what's this Hebrew word? And if you can't say it, you're not getting in. (laughs) That is not true. That is not true. The word, steadfast love, is chesed. Gutteral chesed. Should I ask you to repeat it? No, you don't want to do that. Okay. Steadfast love. you you see that? Most of your translations might have loyal love depending on the translation. Do you see it? Don't look at me. Look at the text. The middle of verse 5. Oh, Yahweh Elohim of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The, The Hebrew word there is chesed. Chesed. It's covenant... Loyal love. This isn't some superficial uh, relational love. This is the deep-seated, covenant, loyal love God has for his people. They're his people. He chose them. He made an unconditional, unilateral covenant with them. So as Nehemiah is praying, he says, Oh, Yahweh Elohim, the God of heaven, you keep covenant and you're chesed. We have been the subjects of your covenant loyal love. In, uh, in, in the book of, uh, uh, in the, in the book of uh, Hosea, which is one of the minor prophets, God is, is saying to Ephraim, the northern tribes, How can I give you up? i chesed you i love you as my people you are whoring after other gods but i still love you and i will win you back uh, in the book of jeremiah which is sometimes called god in the book of jeremiah is depicted as a jilted lover he has loved he's loved judah he's done everything for them and they're still whoring after the Baals and Molech and all these other gods And God says, I'm a jealous God. I'm not going to let you do that. Why? Because I'm the God of Chesed. And because I'm the God of Chesed, I must send you into exile to cure you of this. Because you're mine, and I will love you no matter what you do. I will bring you back, and I will bring you to... I mean, it's just God keeps saying these things to Israel because he's made a promise, a covenant promised to Abraham and he will keep that promise. And so, this word—this is a major word of the New Test of the Old Testament. It is a very important word of the New- Old Testament, and that's why I want you to learn it. Got it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't forget that. It'll be on the quiz next week. So just sure, agape. What? What
1: about agape?
0: Well, that—that's the Greek. The, yeah, yeah, that's Greek, and agape is somewhat similar to this. But it's it's a little bit of a different nuance because it's an other-centered type of love, a self-sacrificing type of love, and it's the love that Jesus exhibits on the cross, and it's the love a husband's to have for his wife. I just thought I'd make you feel bad about that. Okay. Was that a sacrificial statement? Yeah. Right. Yes. I'm. St- I've been married to Peggy for 50 years. I'm still learning what that means, and you know, it's still wow. It's, it's in the fine print. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. I. I always. I think I understand Peggy. I think we're. And then you know. I don't, I don't know. Where'd that come from? I don't know. Okay. But that's just the way it is. Where am I? Uh, in the middle of verse five. Steadfast. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments? Let your ear so. What you see there, do you remember we did that last week? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. Remember that? Here you see, well, what's he doing? He's starting his prayer with adoration of God. Adoring and loving and glorifying God. He's reviewing key, key Hebrew terms that were central to their theology Yahweh, Elohim, Chesed, God of Covenant. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Adoration, confession. If you go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, you see the same thing. These leaders, these leaders of the people of Israel, one of the things they consistently do is confess the sins of the nation. We went into idolatry. What you did in sending us into exile was just. You were, you were right in doing that, God. But God, can you now be merciful? Our need for you is great. To adore God for who he is, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and you confess the sins of the nation... Even I in my father's house have sinned. National confession, personal confession. And when he said my father, he means his family, his extended family. We have acted corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. In verse 8. Any questions? you with me? Yes. Here
2: we have a man praying for his nation. And uh, all of the people of the nation are necessarily praying to God for the sin. They're going about their lives. Similarly, maybe in America today. And yet, here he's going to respond to this. Does that happen today? I'm I'm wanting to know there's hope for our nation by not having all the people suddenly come to Jesus meeting, but people in our country praying that God would be merciful and that we would turn to him.
0: Yes. Yes. Now, let me make, I I totally, totally affirm and agree with what you're saying. I want to make one clear, distinctive difference. The people of Israel are in an unconditional, unilateral covenant with God. The United States of America does not have that kind of covenant. I mean, that's just, that, that does not mean that we should not be praying for our nation and confessing the sins of this nation. But I'm just, that's one distinctive to make, uh, uh, that I think is a very important one. Well, you know, Fred, I would um, i would love to see something that happened when President Eisenhower was president in the early years of his first uh, term of office. He it went on the radio and he asked for the people of the United States to pray and to confess their sins as a nation before a righteous God. Amen. Can you imagine President Trump saying that? No. no. I mean, any president in the last you know, 15, 20 years. I mean, calling the nation, not, not calling the nation Thanksgiving. Every, every president, you know, about the third week of October issues the Thanksgiving <laughs> proclamation. That the fourth Thursday of the month of November, we will have a National Day of Thanksgiving. And all federal officers, because that's the kind of thing. That's not what Eisenhower did. That's not what Lincoln did. They're calling the nation to come to terms with their sin. That is not what's happening in our country today. And that's the sad thing that I would really love to see that the confession in our nation is is uh, dealing with the sins. We're very open and very clear in reviewing to the Lord where we failed him. God responds to those kinds of prayers. So that's probably all I'm going to say about that because it's time to stop. I just looked at my watch. I'm really, I didn't want to, I don't want to stop here, but the time tells me we must stop here because that first three word phrase of verse 8 is so incredible remember that's his prayer remember if you want to find out the content of what he got wants to he, what Nehemiah wants God to remember come back next week <laughs> great great prayer it really is let me pray lord we thank you for our study Oh, goodness. We covered a lot of territory by way of introduction. We reviewed a lot of history, and I hope, um, Lord, I hope I didn't go too fast at trying to really set the context for this remarkable book. This uh, astonishing prayer, this this remarkable man, Nehemiah, who served the king of Persia. He was in the court of Persia, a very powerful individual, and uh, yet he's humbly confessing the sins of his people, in the sins of his family before a righteous holy God, asking for mercy at a critical juncture in the history of this this nation. So, Lord, we have the privilege of uh, opening the window of history and peering in through the lens of Nehemiah to what happens at a very critical juncture in the history, not only of Persia, but in the history of the people of Israel. Many are back in the land. Many have been rebuilding the temple. It's done sacrificial system is very instituted but the nation is very vulnerable the city is very vulnerable and so nehemiah is absolutely coming unglued and he turns to the only one who can make a difference he turns to you and it's an astonishing prayer for its honesty for its humility but also for its boldness in asking you to do something that only you could do thank you for these men that are willing to take time out of their day on a wednesday and spend an hour of very intense, detailed study of the Bible. I thank you for them. May you use the scriptures to bring transformational change into each one of our lives, to not only understand the word, but to welcome and embrace it, because that's how change occurs. We ask your blessing as we go our separate ways. May we represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.